Welcome to episode 1619 of the Permaculture Podcast with Scott Mann. My guests for this episode are Nate Kleinman of the Experimental Farm Network, Paul Glover, the founder of Philadelphia Orchard Project, Robin Mello of Philadelphia Orchard Project, and Katrina Baxter of Public Interest Law Center. In this, the second of the Philadelphia Roundtable Conversations, recorded earlier this year at Repair the World. As this is the second session, it's a question and answer segment with the audience. The questions result in answers that touch on the reality of how monies are allocated for projects, the impact of genetically modified foods and plant breeding on our loss of seed diversity, which reinforces the importance of seed saving, poultry disobedience, and so much more. As a result of the density of this conversation, you'll find a long list of additional resources in the show notes, which includes how to contact each of the panelists if you'd like to follow up with any one of them. This interview, and the day spent at Repair the World with photographer John, is made possible because of the backing of listeners like you and by the show sponsors. Find out more about how you can help the podcast remain an open, ongoing permaculture resource by visiting the support tab at thepermaculturepodcast.com. Today's sponsors are Good Seed Company and Inside Edge Design. Good Seed Company, a business with over 40 years of experience delivering open-pollinated, non-GMO seeds, believes we have an inalienable right to these seeds, the seeds of our ancestors. We've saved seeds such as these for thousands of years, and they can continue to sustain us today and contribute to a bountiful future for the generations yet to come. Find out more about the rich history of this company at goodseedco.net or shop the catalog of ecologically grown organic seeds online, store.goodseedco.net. Inside Edge Design in Helena, Montana, is a permaculture design consulting and education firm that offers designs that focus on creating sustainable and ecological cultures that support people and the landscape. In cooperation with Broken Ground Permaculture and Penny Livingston Stark, they are offering a permaculture design course from July 15th through the 27th, 2016, that is specifically created to accommodate families and couples. Find out more at InsideEdgeDesign.com or via the link in the show notes. Also be sure to visit the other podcast sponsors, Permikids at permikids.com and Your Garden Solution at yourgardensolution.org. Now then, on to the panelists. I'll join you again afterwards. My question was kind of around things happening in Philly now related to uh, where the city is investing money. Some things I've been thinking about, uh, I've heard that FDR Park is uh, getting a $16 million remake, making it greener, making it have uh, rain gardens and things, which all sounds great. Um, there's a $16 million project as well to open up a, uh, a reservoir in Fairmount Park that I've heard about recently, um, to put in an education center. And while these things sound great to me as far as opening up resources, letting people like access this reservoir and uh, making this inner city park greener, some things that have been conflicting to me is all that money going into these projects as opposed to things like our schools, which are, are really in need right now. Um, so my question was just to hear your thoughts about uh, where the city is investing money and um, specifically these projects, which I like the idea of, but they also seem very costly. And um, where could that money go better? I think it's always, um, it's really 
idealistic when we see sort of when we see money coming into the city and you sort of think that oh can't that be allocated for something else the reality is that those were funds that were granted earmarked for a specific purpose so it's, it's not that cut and dry so let me just say that that's what I mean like it's just not that cut and dry where like whatever you know streams are coming in that the city can sort of break it up into what you know what they think is is feasible um, you know those environmental projects got specific money for environmental projects so it, it couldn't be because God knows we would be totally rallying for it to go towards schools if that was if that was possible but that's generally not not how that happens right because there's a whole nother fund that they get those that they get that funding from and this, and those projects even though they sound amazing aren't always so you know aren't always what those communities want right so a lot there's a whole lot of pushback in the community around the reservoir because who's going to have access to that really um, the, so the group who is um, sort of spearheading the, the you know the, the that project at the reservoir is, is wanted to be was very specific about um, it being um, open to certain groups so you know so there's all these other ways that we have to um, to be advocates around what happens environmentally in our city, right? Because you know it doesn't always it doesn't always benefit everyone, and so that's the problem that we find a lot of times with environmental um, issues that I mean, environmental funds that come in through the city. Is it going to be is it going to be something that that everyone can experience and everyone can can benefit from? Is really what's important. And then so there there are some really awesome event on the table right now with Urban Ag and Parks and Parks and Rec. So Urban Ag is um, they just got uh, some really cool. Um, some money from the from who is it? Oh, I can't remember. To do some um, groundwork, to do some soil work, and so there's a lot of money now for garden urban gardeners that we'll hear a lot about. I don't know if anyone's heard about. We have the urban, they have the um, FPAC, which is the, the the city's food and policy council, is having an open house on the um, February. Actually, I'm looking at my eighth. date book. February eighth. I think it's at PHS. Mm -hmm. So they're going to have a lot of information there about the two new initiatives that they have for Urban Act specifically, that um, where gardeners can be um, can come and get some kind of resources along with um, the, some PWD initiative that's sort of coinciding with the rain gardens. Um, with that, with that. So, so there are some there is some money that's starting to come in for urban agriculture. A lot of that is about them understanding that that there is a constituency out there. And so we, when I spoke earlier about the soil generation, um, you know, the soil generation. Coalition, a lot of the work in soil generation came out of healthy foods, green spaces, and a lot of that work was is around you know letting this, um, allowing the city council to see that there is a constituency because for a long time they just didn't think there was, mm -hmm. and so now that they know we have you know we have a better place to get some you know to, to get some answers to some things and some hopefully resources to what we need in the city. I don't necessarily know about those. I, I might know about the reservoir project, but I'm not sure if it's the, the project that I'm thinking of. So I can't really speak to those projects specifically. But something that I've really been thinking a lot about recently is the importance of having kind of different levels of communication. One of the things that's been really great for me as I've been working and developing my job with the Philly Orchard Project is that I've been learning how as a nonprofit that is still really small and pretty malleable, the, the ways that we can fit in to act as a go-between um, between the city and or different larger organizations, larger agencies and the communities that we work with. And we work in so many different communities and, and now, you know, and I'm a part of Soil Generation as well, which is opening up a whole new world of, of people that, um, people and gardens that the Philly Orchard Project doesn't necessarily specifically work with to be able to make sure that the city knows what, what neighborhoods want um, and what specific, co what specific groups want. 
I deal a lot with the Parks and Recreation Department. There's some really incredible people that work in that department and um, who are really excited about the work that, that we're doing in the city and want to be more involved and want to be able to have some of those earmarked funds go towards the kinds of projects that we're, that we're all talking about. But they don't know. You know, these are just a few people who are in, embroiled in an extreme bureaucratic you know, mess <laughs> who really need a lot of people who aren't inside this bureaucratic mess to be doing a lot of on the ground work and a lot of communication. I just recently had a meeting in which I heard some people who work for Parks and Rec saying that, you know, if they don't know what groups are around, if they if they have a specific community group that they've been working with in a neighborhood, they're gonna assume that that's the community group that's doing work in the neighborhood. If they don't know about new groups that have popped up because of various political things or social things or new ideas, they're not gonna be able to talk with, the, with those constituents. So there needs to be a better, you know, there needs to be better communication. And I don't necessarily have the answers for that, but that's, you know, one of the things that I think that the smaller, the coalitions and the smaller nonprofits and these smaller, more organized, maybe, you know, more loud people, mm -hmm. you know, can come in and, and, you know, kind of provide a voice for people who are otherwise voiceless. Mm -hmm. Permaculture in the city is an intensely political process, as you're suggesting. And uh, if it were left, the people currently who control the land, the law, the money, and the media. If it were left to them, they would build condos wall to wall in this city, with the exception of a few dog parks, <laughs> some bike lanes, which I highly approve of, and, uh, and uh, certain amenities which serve the gentry. Who wants certain amenities, huh? Banks. Banks. <laughs> and uh, and the, so the notion of asserting that agriculture should be a permanent part of the structure, economy, and culture of a city. In the face of that trajectory and that, that <coughs> demand of capital for maximum more money uh, is a huge challenge. And uh, we can only hope that capitalism falls apart. Now, we can do more than that. <laughs> We can transform capitalism. We can assert that capital is people and children, as I say, and beauty. That's capital. That there are broader ideas of capital, broader ideas of progress. And to prove that we have better ways of feeding, fueling, housing, and healing mm -hmm. than the current institutions provide. I, one of my, I've written some books, and I have a little flyer here about them, and one of them is titled How to Take Power. And it's based on decades of having started organizations which effectively have shut down highways that have been approved, shopping malls on wetlands, uh, incinerator and, and suburbanization, as well as starting organizations that, that allow people to come together to do what they would prefer, actually, to see happen. So uh, I love the challenge here in Philadelphia. Um, I'll admit I've been a little bit distracted uh, after you asked your question because I, I didn't know they were doing a redesign of FDR Park. <laughs> and um, I've, been thinking, I've been thinking for a while about Philadelphia needs a, this area in general needs some kind of uh, orchard garden that's just focused on preserving local varieties. There's actually a lot of 
uh, apple and pear and other varieties, grapes from this area that at times were historically important. Some of them are lost, some of them are still around. And uh, that's been kind of a, that's been kind of a, a mini dream of mine. I might have to talk to Robin later about collaborating with the Orchard Project and working with the city to get some space down there because in one corner of FDR Park, oh, you s- this story is Love Park. Huh? Oh, it's Love Park, not oh, FDR Park. Totally different. Oh. That's okay. <laughs> well, still, uh, in one corner of FDR Park was um, used to be the farm of a guy named Seckel, who is uh, who's mm-hmm. Seckel Pear. Mm-hmm. A lot of people don't know. Actually, wow. is from yeah. Philadelphia. It used to be called the Philadelphia Sugar Pear, and. Um, you know, there's there's a there's a lot of interesting fruit like that that people don't know has Philly connections. The Niagara Niagara grape that everybody that you know is Welch's white grape juice that actually is from a grape that was developed I think in Ohio. But uh, one of the parent grapes of that is a grape called Cassidy that's now extinct as far as we know, but was um, was developed by a farmer at what's now Logan Circle when that was a rural part of the city. Um, but there's a lot of uh, interesting <clears throat> stories like that. So that's my uh, utter aside to the question. <laughs> <laughs> we have um, at Bartram's Gardens, to add to the aside, we have uh, 120 fruit trees, I believe. And I was not a part of designing that space. It was before I was hired. But Phil Forsyth, our executive director, had um, did a lot of work to bring in as many historic varieties that had been previously planted on Bartram's land um, and you know also to bring in other natives and, and non-natives into that space but a large part of it is historical cultivars we I mean I, I nerd out about that stuff all the time and I can't wait for the future when I have more time whenever that happens to work on on spaces that have you know historical significance like um, you know Woodland Cemetery working to be a part of re reintroducing plants that uh, Hamilton had on that site and um, you know that's a huge part of the work that that I really want to do is to bring in the the old and the new and working with historic sites in Philly has been a really awesome thing because we are able to, those are spaces that are already preserved. There's just, there's just spaces that are, you know, pretty much always going to be there. They're always going to have funding because there's people who are so, so many people who are so into historic preservation mm-hmm. um, and they all have landscapes and they all have, his, they have archives and they also all mostly have links with the community. Um, so those have been really great partners and I love those projects. We'll talk. <laughs> So on just exactly that. Do you want to use the microphone? Um, you end up having this this interest that you mentioned, Nate, uh, of having the uh, various gardens have a specific interest in you know growing. Um, what would be you know the what grew locally, and you mentioned Steckel Pear, et cetera, and Bartram's Garden being a source. Uh, for that kind of information, I would also mention that the local herbarium at the Academy of Natural Sciences is the repository of the um, information going back from the beginning of that wonderful natural science academy, which was the first in the country, um, and a sponsored Lewis and Clark expedition, et cetera, et cetera. And they have the actual type collections of Bartrams and um, Lewis and Clark, et cetera, at the academy. And besides a, a, you know, a general herbarium collection from around the world, they've got like the largest local herbarium because here they were center of science 
you know, in the new world and, and all of the fields of ornithology or geology or um, herpetology, et cetera, were of interest. But in terms of plants, they were it. And so they actually catalog it. And they have a great interest in cataloging what was native and what has now become either rare or you, you can't find any longer. And I, I think related to this is, you know, why we should be so interested in besides finding things like the cycle pear is so sweet. And it, by the way, is a great plant, also, um, great fruit to dry and dehydrate, thinking of these apples back here. But recently I happened to come across in another state completely, I think somewhere in the West, a Native uh, American um, piece of pottery from, you know, and. An, antiquity was found with just a few seeds of a squash that doesn't grow here anymore and it managed to grow and you know indeed as everybody who's interested in saving uh, heritage seeds knows we might find a resilience to it or um, that they have really high vitamin values of a or something else like that so I'm just pointing out that our, we have this uh, local store of knowledge at the um, herbarium, and if there isn't already initiative to connect to you folks, then somebody should help to cultivate that. We should definitely talk. You'll have to put us in touch, though. You got my card already. Yeah, Some great. seeds, yeah, we'd love to do that. I, I One other, um, there are, people don't think about Philadelphia as a, as a center of agriculture, but it, it really was. I mean, some of the most important seed companies in the in the country used to be headquartered here in the city, and um, so many varieties that are still really popular are come from here. and And it goes to it goes back to uh, pre-European days as well. A, a lot of the um, Native American vegetables that were grown here are now still incredibly popular. The yellow crookneck squash is an old Lenape heirloom. Um, the patty pan squash used to used to grow around here. And uh, that is one thing that we, we're also, um, I've been doing for years, is, is trying to get all of these local seeds. And, and we have a lot of, uh, there are a lot of people in, in this area who are working to bring some of these things back to the area. The one that I'm most passionate about is this Nanticoke squash that I got out of a seed bank in Iowa, uh, and as far as I knew, nobody's growing it here anymore and have been able to, um, to get it to people in, um, in South Jersey and in Delaware who are descended from the Nanticoke people whose ancestors developed that squash and, and hadn't been, haven't been growing it for, for probably a few hundred years. Um, and it's one of the tastiest, most delicious squash, and it grows incredibly well here because this is its home. Well, on that chance of being able to find a really old seed that could be fertile still, which is what happened with the one that was this, you know, made early, early, early Native American one, um, the Academy um, has an herbarium, and they carefully put all the plants on here. And if there's anything loose, particularly seeds, any identifying part, to put in a little envelope. So if indeed something could be still Yeah, there could be seats sitting there in the museum. Go there and ask for permission to get a few seats. I definitely will. Poison Ivy could be 50 years old from on a barbarian sheet. You can still get the Poison Ivy Just as a, I need to share, because Trina and I were making eyes at each other, that 
squash is being grown in Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. That squash, that those yeah. seeds are being grown by friends of ours who work at Bartram's Gardens and who are seed savers mm-hmm. and avid cultural yeah. seed seed keepers seed is what they call it. Yeah. You know, not just seed savers, but keepers of the culture and the history of these seeds. Mm-hmm. Um, that that squash is is being grown on on Philly soil. Right, and so and it was and actually it was found or given to a man who who has a seed farm rough rough seed collection, which is right outside of Philadelphia in Devon, Pennsylvania. And so um, the gentleman who works with him, Owen Taylor, is a part of Soil Generation, and with and he and I and his partner Chris are in this group called the Seed Keepers Collective, where we save seeds, heritage seeds, and also the stories of the cultures that come along with those seeds. So that story that you told, which is awesome, is a story that will continue to go on and go on. And they were actually able to give that seed um, back to you know the one of the tribes in, in the mm-hmm. states here, mm-hmm. where they could now you know ca- carry that story forward about you know how the seed was brought back to them. And so um, you know understanding the importance of seed saving and and, and seed seed saving and cultural stories, right? So like, you know, we passed on our, our stories through, you know, through a lot of times through the seeds, through the foods that we ate, right? So, you know, the, how important it is that a lot that that along with, you know, this whole this whole sort of revolution of you know, revolutionary how they thought was revolutionizing seed keeping um, and saving seeds is totally wiping out people's cultures because of that. And so trying to retake that back again when we're thinking about saving seeds and understanding that, that you know this carry also you know, snippets of culture with them. And so we're losing our culture along with our seeds. You know, it's so, so much bigger than just just the seed, right? Just that food thing. Mm-hmm. It carries with it so much more. And so the collective, the Seed Keepers Collective, and their sort of goal and objective is to carry on the tradition of seed storytelling. And so the, so, so we keep these stories and however they're brought back. And, and Nate's a huge lady, even though he's not in the collective, he's like great with the seed stories too. And I was just on a panel that earlier in the week with Ken Green um, from, that's from Hudson Valley Seed Library, and he's completely all about these seed stories too, and understanding how how important it is for us to um, to continue our culture through it, through the foods that we eat and through the seeds that we share mm-hmm. with each other. Like that's really huge um, on the sort of a talking point that's in the in the agricultural community mm-hmm. right now. What was the name of the person in Dublin? Um, Roughwood Seed Collection, and his um, name is William Woyes Weaver. Got it. Mm-hmm. Yes. yes. And Owen Taylor is is helping him to manage his collection. Yeah. Oh, okay. He's involved with Soil Generation and, and Philly Project and all the other things. They're both on our board too. Yeah. That's <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's a, it's a, a nice, little, of, uh, nice little community. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I just to add to that, a, a seed story is that um, my housemate and best friend uh, is very much also into seed saving and very specifically into beans and corn and mm-hmm. and in her. The space that she tends uh, fairly close to our house um, has been growing uh, a history garden and has for for the past two seasons has been growing rows of of plants that were uh, attached to the Lenape culture and then moving on to the Quaker uh, German culture mm-hmm. and into the Puerto Rican and African American cultures of today um, to teach people to teach uh, the, the kids that come into the space, the families come into the space to honor the space mm-hmm. and to save seeds. And some of the, uh, I, I wanted to get involved and didn't really have the ability to grow many annuals this year, but we, I built a raised bed in front of my house because I needed to grow something. <laughs> and um, we planted the black shakamaxin beans and trailed them up the front of my house. And um, the, I, correct me if I'm wrong, but those were the beans that were used 
as currency in the in the pen treaty signing of pen treaty. Is this correct? That's what they say. That's that what they were given <coughs> by the Lenape to William Penn. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, so we. The black Shackamaxon being Shackamaxon. Shackamaxon was the chief. Shackamaxon was the town. The town where Fishtown is now was yeah. like the main settlement okay. yeah. in this area. And the and Penn Treaty Park, um, which is is a space is a, a Philly Park space that's on the Delaware River, um, where we have taken those beans. Yeah. So we feel it's like pretty important. It's a yeah. Yeah, it's a climber. Yeah. Trailed right up the front of my house. Yeah. So Heritage Gardens are really becoming popular for those reasons there, especially in the gardens that we have around the city with the, with that are working with young people, right? So that so that they understand that these are heritage crops that you know they're that they're folks that their ancestors raised and grew or maybe brought over here when they came over here. Like Owen tells the story of the lumper potato, which he says isn't a very tasty potato. However, this was the, t the potato from the potato family, and him being of Irish heritage, you know he he collects and holds on to the story, right? And so and so to think about that when we think about how you know what seeds we decide to preserve and what seeds we don't decide to preserve you know based on a lot of times what they mean to us the significance of it because you know everything when we personalize it becomes that much bigger right I'll tell one more seed story because there's some food here that you'll be eating later on that note one of the I, I get a lot of seeds from the USDA from the seed banks around the country and uh, a few years ago I requested seeds for um, I think four different kinds of sorghum from a town called Malakal in South Sudan because that I had a friend from that little city and um, so we started growing them and this is the one that grew the best although a few of them grew really really well it's called coral or that's the name the USDA gave to it it's slightly purple it's a beautiful grain that's gluten-free and um, the stalk is full of sugar you can press it for sugar get molasses from it um, and the grain pops like popcorn. You could also make flour with it or cook it like rice. I just boiled it and, um, and that's how it served back there. Um, but this, you know, I just got it because I happened to know someone from the town, but uh, Malakal became a major flashpoint in the civil war in South Sudan over the last year and a half. Um, and from, from what I've heard from, from uh, you know, a man who has family there, the town's been more or less depopulated eight times. People have been been kicked out of the town, and lots of people have died. Lots of famine. The the seed stores they've had to go into to eat. So the, these seeds that we got on a whim from the USDA uh, are going to go back there and and are going to help to um, reestablish this variety in the place where it came from because. They, they've lost it uh, during the course of this uh, horrible war. And um, so yeah, you never know when, you never know when these, uh, these stories are going to have a lot more significance than you expected. Yeah, I had met a woman in the summer from South Africa and they can't grow their regional seeds. So they can only grow GMO seeds that are bought from, you know, large, large seeds. That, and so Owen and I, we were in Oakland and then and we made sure that we tried to give her some seeds so she could try to sneak them back on the plane because, you know, so we will be, you know, a lot a lot of what we carry and understanding our privilege, right, and living here in the States and, 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 and being able to maybe repopulate, you know, and give back you know, to some of these cultures, the things that they've lost through our government um, and corporate control of their countries um, might be a huge role that we play in the future of these other countries and continuing their culture. Seed savers without borders. <laughs> <laughs> that would be cool.
There's a there's an herbalist without borders that we're gonna try to start in this or be a part of mm -hmm. in the states. Yeah. Nice. Coming from a somewhat southern family, a lot of our stories were told around food and the things that we eat and what brings us to the table. And hearing those stories about seeds, it makes me think about how much has been lost by homogenizing our food. And thinking about, Nate, you're talking about how tasty that squash is, that there are certain recipes I probably have eaten in my life that taste nothing like what they would have to the people who originated them because of the varieties of foods that are no longer available. Perhaps the sugar content or the st starch content is a little different and changes the way that that food makes it onto our plate. There really is a crisis in, uh, in the world right now. Uh, the need to preserve these varieties is, has never been more acute, but especially in the last 20 years since, uh, since GMOs were introduced and have proliferated so far that we're you know, there's no, I, I haven't heard of anybody who has even attempted to say, you know, we're losing so many varieties every week, but it's probably, you know, on average, averages out to hundreds. Mm -hmm. And seed banks like the, uh, like the USDA operates, like Seed Savers Exchange in, in based in Iowa operates, uh, Native Seeds in Tucson, they are doing their best, but, uh, you know, they, they can't do it alone. And most of these uh, are public resources that people can access. Uh, I just put in a request for over 300 new things new to my collection from the USDA collection and uh, things that had been on my like wish list that I created a couple months ago were gone already. They're no longer in the system in the time that I that I took to request it. And that may just be because you know they've given out all the ones they had for this year they needed to regenerate for next year. But it could also be because the mother plant that they're keeping alive in, in Corvallis or in Ames or wherever died. And it doesn't exist in this central public repository anymore. So, uh, and I know that a lot of the seeds that I have requested over the years they are they're not there anymore and some of them won't won't be back in the system unless mm -hmm. so if people aren't actively working to save these things to keep them to keep the stories they're they're going to be lost and uh, it, it's so critical for food security in the future that we um, that we maintain this biodiversity and in the U.S., we are, you know, we're incredibly lucky that we have this government uh, system that's been being built for, at this point, about 120 years. And um, I, I often say it's the best thing that the U.S. government does. And other countries have this as well. But these, these are not worth much unless, uh, unless the seeds are actively grown. And a seed in a seed bank isn't doing any any good, especially with the way the climate is changing. Seeds need to adapt to the weather, to the soil, to the different disease pressures, <coughs> pest pressures. Uh, so if we're not if we're not growing them, uh, we're gonna we're gonna lose them forever. So it's um, I think it's it's really important that we get thousands and tens of thousands of people engaged in a in a project like this. Could you speak more about your comment about the? rise of GMOs relating to the loss of the seed diversity? Sure. Well... How that's connected. Yeah, uh, mainly the GMOs are... GMOs, you know, they started as a very small section of uh, what was being grown nationally, but um, 
at this point, 95% of the corn that's being grown in this country, maybe higher, is, is genetically modified. And soybeans, it's, it's, it's even higher for soybeans uh, and canola. And these are, the, the problem goes back before GMOs as well to the hybrid seeds and, and industrialized agriculture, probably 50, 60, 70 years. But every year with uh, more and more, more and more acres under cultivation with GMOs, that just represents a loss of any other crops being grown there. So it used to be that farmers were keeping alive these old varieties for commercial purposes, um, but in so many places that's not happening anymore. GMO corn is is literally one variety that's been modified and that's it. Or there may be 10, 12 varieties, but each one is a new creature on this planet. It's, it, it's something totally different and it's not uh, the, the the genetic diversity is such a bottleneck now and they're also produced so that they can't uh, often so that they can't reproduce or so that the next generation is not the same as what you plant that way farmer has to buy from the company every year and that was it was that way with hybrid seeds already um, with most of these heirloom seeds with open pollinated seeds if you plant it, if you save the seeds and plant it, you'll get the same thing year after year. So the hybrid actually, it sounds like more diversity, but it's actually a way of controlling Absolutely. The, the, having the power of the seed. Exactly. And, it, and it's, it's, it's happening in this country, but it's also happening around the world. And uh, the loss of, I mean, other countries had, were as rich or, or richer in biodiversity, food biodiversity, than, than this country. And so... Uh, what's happening in India, uh, in in China, in Africa, it, it all over the place. In Europe, is just it's staggering, and um, it's a real you know we're we're in a race against time to to save these things. Um, this guy we keep talking about, William Moyes Weaver, his he found a freezer in his grandmother's basement nine years after his grandfather died, and it had jars, glass jars with seeds in it, and um, they were they were his grandfather's and some of those seeds at that point as far as anyone can tell didn't exist anywhere else he was the last person to preserve them and if that if that freezer hadn't been plugged in for nine years in that basement <laughs> they they might have been lost and and some of the seeds that seeds that you can now find in uh seed catalogs and in and in you know stores here in philadelphia like the fish pepper uh, wouldn't exist if it hadn't uh, if it hadn't been preserved that way. So it's a real, yeah, it's a it's a real race against time. And I also want to speak on. Um, hopefully, I can I can speak coherently on it. I one of the things that I want to get across about this this conversation is that a lot of the people who are doing research on a lot of scientists who have funding to do research on. Um, genetic modification on seed research in general or plant breeding research in general are not bad people um i did i did a year of research before being uh before getting the job with the philadelphia orchard project i worked for a year mostly as a field hand uh, at the university of delaware doing participating in a corn breeding research program it wasn't specifically genetic modification the way that we look at it it was more it was more conventional breeding um, but there were genetic modif genetically modified seeds that were being hybridized to try to, as I was told, to increase the biodiversity of the seed stock, but they were being crossed with genetically modified seeds. 
And I took the job because I wanted to know. I wanted to learn more about genetics. I wanted to learn more about the work that was being done. I felt like I could be, you know, simultaneously a, a sponge and also kind of like a, a plant, for lack of a better word, I guess. Um, um, and what I learned through that work, um, as best as I could, is that the scientists, you know, Scientists are tinkerers, you know, people want it. They just want to know what's going on and a lot of times they they have no idea what the big picture is mm -hmm. They especially when you're working in a research in a laboratory facility a lot of times Projects are broken up across several universities mm -hmm. very intentionally so that proprietary information can't be stolen um, so one scientist or one laboratory is working on a very very small piece of a project that eventually is pieced together for to become a whole something and I asked a lot of questions while I was doing this work you know it was like minim minimum wage just like working in the field and I tried as hard as possible to ask questions to the scientists who were leading the project and most of the time they were just they would just like kind of look at me with blank stares of like what do you what do you mean like they didn't know anything about this stuff that we're talking about right now because their academic work um, their academic training and now their research is completely detached from that from this like big picture vision so it's important to keep that in mind that like we need people like us need to speak up and need to but not be antagonistic and not think that the people that are doing this research are doing it because they're trying to destroy things they're doing it because they think that they're contributing to making the world a better place but there needs to be way more of a balance and there needs to be a look at like everything holistically and like as this earth and its people as like a whole organism, as opposed to just these really, really tiny fragmented pieces um, that, you know, make it so that we can function. You know, we can't absorb all of the information all the time. Um, but we do, you know, need to have these conversations and contribute to, you know, speaking to people who maybe otherwise we consider our enemies. Nate, I believe you mentioned Wes Jackson of the Land Institute earlier. I interviewed his daughter, uh, Dr. Laura Jackson, who's a professor in the Midwest. And she was the first person who really gave me a clear impression of why a lot of what happens within our agricultural system, why it continues to occur the way that it does. And it's because everybody's locked into a system. You have seed purveyors who are growing seed because that's what our market has moved to demand for, you know, the number of bushels that we produce per acre and things like that. So then in order for a farmer to compete, they're buying that seed, not necessarily thinking about what it is that they're buying, but because that's what they can grow to turn the most out of their land when they're already on razor thin margins. And many of the things that we think about or talk about wanting to help farmers to learn how to grow, they have millions of dollars worth of equipment that can't be changed over. And then even then, whenever they want to go take what they have and sell it to market, because in many cases they're growing commodity crops, they're stuck into that commodity market. And so, yeah, they're not really our enemies or anything else. They're people who are just trying to do the best that they can with the, with the one life that they have, not having the space or time to think about it. And when the difference between producing, you know, 80 bushels per acre or 160 bushels per acre is spraying Roundup, and growing that seed that's modified for it to make it easier, then you don't really have another choice. And that's, I think, the part that really hurt me to have conversations with folks. And also, not only because of what is locked in with the agricultural system as it exists, but there's also the social culture that comes with it. There really is something going on that in order to bring about this kind of change to return biodiversity, if we're going to do it on a larger scale, isn't just about 
keeping the seeds themselves viable, which is an incredibly important part of the conversation, but also providing the space in urban environments and elsewhere that people can grow and learn these things that don't conflict with those people who care about them or who might provide the money. And at the same time, the policies that are in place. And I know that within Harrisburg itself as a city and some of the surrounding areas where I'm from in central Pennsylvania, there are all kinds of laws on the books that keep us from practicing urban agriculture because of needing a certain amount of acreage that isn't actually available in the city. Or there are ordinances that say you can raise chickens, but you need to have five acres. And there's like three lots in the city that will allow for that. But then when you actually read the ordinances, you can't actually have a chicken coop within like 400 feet of any of the borders of that property. So you need to have a perfect square and you're left with an eight by eight center <laughs> section in the center of it. But then if your neighbors call, the chickens themselves aren't illegal because the chickens aren't under agriculture, they're under nuisance ordinances. And you find out that now your chickens are going to be, you're going to get fined $3,000 a chicken per day because it's not under agriculture, it's elsewhere. And it's all these little places that it took us, I think, three years to find out where chickens were in the ordinances in Harrisburg because there were nowhere where we thought they would be. And nobody knew that until one day somebody happened to turn over. It's like chickens, nuisances, what? And it's all these little pieces that kind of come together to how do we make this work? And it's big and it's crazy and it's complicated, but every one of us who wakes up in the morning and cares, we all have an ability to make the change. It's, you know, what do we do that we're really good at? What's your one true thing? Do that. If that's what you care about, we can make this happen. I believe that we have the ability to have more than just one true thing, though. Just so. <laughs> I think that we have inside of us a multitude of things and beings and, 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 you know, and personalities and characteristics and that we should honor all of those and, and, and moving forward in, in, in life and, and not to forget that we, and I feel like we siloed ourselves over whatever, whatever time, you know, whatever time frame that in, as a country we sort of put it so that we had to do this one job and you could do that one job really good for the rest of your life you know and I don't know where that came from because there's so much inside of us that we should honor that we have to honor in, in our being here and that requires us to have you know multiple different careers maybe during the course of our time here multiple different interests of you know those because we are so so just diverse and just our inner being. And so to, to honor that and, and finding, you know, and finding what you want to, you know, sort of give your energy towards, I think, in the, in the, in the course of what we're doing is really important um, to know that, you know, everyone doesn't have this skill set. Like, everyone's not going to sit at city council, which I have to remind myself of, too, and, and, and understand where my privilege is, right? That I have a job that allows me to sit in these and sit in these meetings downtown at a certain time of the day where people are, most people are working, right? I may have the ability to take a lower income job because I have these other things that, that are, you know, which the next person may not be able to do, and that you know, so so to think about where, where my privilege is and what it allows me to do, so that I can help forward the rest of us who may not be able to be there at that seat, is really important to me when I think about you know the whole, right? Because everything is about the whole, and understanding that we're all connected, so that with the work that I'm doing in every aspect of my life, somehow I know affects everyone else. In, in my circle and then them in their circle and then them in their circle and understanding that that is the, to, to remember that and all and everything that I do is really important in the words that I say and the actions that I do around you know around town and for myself that that understanding when we're all connected and that what I do affects you as well is really important how we move forward and to honor all of that of who we are based on how we want to live I was going to say one other thing on the 
you mentioned the you know the market de- determining so much of what happens in, on on uh, in rural areas with people who have a lot of land, and unfortunately, it's it's not just the market at this point. You know, it's it's the way our neoliberal capitalist system works. It's major corporations have. Um, have the deciding vote in Washington. They're the ones who are calling the shots on agricultural policy. So that family farm that wants to convert a small area of it to a food forest, there's the reasons why it's not economically feasible for them to do it have much less to do with the actual economics of, of farming, but have to do with what the policies that happen in Washington. That it's... If you're growing corn, you have a whole crop insurance system that you can tap into and you know you're going to be secure, you know you're going to get a certain price. The government is all over that. Um, but if you're growing a diversified polyculture system, you don't have any kind of safety net. And um, so that's one of the things we're, one of the things that is part of the long-term vision of the Experimental Farm Network is to work to create alternatives for farmers that are that you can say, okay, this is an economically viable alternative for you. It will take three years to get a certain amount of land up, up, and you'll have a new viable crop that you'll be able to make a living off of. And it's unfortunate that that's the way things are, but we we need to create those alternatives in the absence of revolutionary changes to our political system that. Uh, you know, I, I haven't given up fighting, uh, fighting on things as well. But I think, you know, there's so much, there's so much building we have to do as well on on the outside, um, and uh, and hope that uh, better people will make their ways into the halls of power as well and uh, change some of these really terrible policies. What you look at the at uh, Obama's State of the Union, the the one cabinet member who's been there for the entire term is uh, Tom Vilsack the former governor of Iowa, who is runs the Department of Agriculture and is pretty notoriously in the pocket of Monsanto and, and all of these big corporations. He's not going anywhere because he knows there's a chance they might put somebody in there who, uh, who actually is going to focus government money and government attention on small farmers, family farmers, permaculturists, people doing this great work that... Um, currently is not being supported by the officials but if it were to be it could probably spread a lot faster a lot farther and uh, we wouldn't have as many problems in our rural areas as we do mm-hmm. but people are fighting back all over the country Hell so yeah. there's national food and farm family fa- farm farm and family coalition there's a US food sovereignty alliance there are you know there are large organizations that are coming together and and, get, and gathering farmers and, and farm workers together so that we can make a stance on the national like on the national scene like let them know to consistently let them know that these things are important to us it is really difficult for smaller for small farmers to do anything outside of the outside of the norm and the, and the culture as you as you pointed out is hugely a part of that like you know you see now it's been like 70 80 years right of people growing food a certain way that's a whole long time that they have created this culture around that and getting older farmers to like train you know to to like transfer the transform the way they do food is is like 
huge. That's a huge undertaking. So, so there's a whole lot of sort of you know pieces to the puzzle that have to, that has to be um, paid attention to and has to be cared for when we think about how to move forward in our in our agricultural system and our food system. Scott is uh, mentioning the boundaries of the law, mm-hmm. and I'm a big fan of breaking the law. <laughs> um, all human progress is relied on breaking the law ending slavery, votes for women, eight-hour workday, social security, mm-hmm. civil rights, and so forth. All of this is dependent on breaking the law and with respect to chickens. In Philadelphia, we have the Philadelphia backyard chickens, mm-hmm. and they are advocating, and in fact, doing civil disobedience, chicken right. civil disobedience, poultry civil disobedience, <laughs> to assert that, well, we are not going to wait around for uh, three acres in Philadelphia. Yeah, three acres on which to legally raise chickens. They're doing it anyway, and this is how law is made. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've written a lot about how I have a list, a long list of things which once were lawful, which are now illegal, and things which were illegal, which are now lawful. And uh, the, so law is up to us. We and, determine that. And it's true. Uh, waiting <clears throat> around for electing the right people mm-hmm. is. Uh, I agree. Yeah, you got to just do it. We've had a couple of victories lately in this in this arena too. And uh, <laughs> yeah. seed freedom in Pennsylvania. There was a the last administration was um, was enforcing this ridiculous seed law from 2004 to stop a seed library, which was just small-scale sharing seeds and in uh, you know and people got together with the help of the the organization Katrina works for and a number of other groups uh, and uh, PASA being one of them um, wrote letters uh, worked we had we did some civil disobedience we had a seed swap that was very public awesome. and very illegal by that <laughs> definition of the law and and we actually forced the the state agricultural department to pu- publicize that they are not going to enforce that law as it's on the books, mm-hmm. um, and uh, the um, they were they were going to sneak in a GMO labeling law in the, on the federal level at the end of last year, uh, and and lots of people the Dark Act, lots of people fought and pushed and pushed, and uh, and that was not put in the budget. A lot of people the, there was talk they were going to do an end run around the law and put a mandatory. A watered-down national mandatory labeling law. They were going to have little QR codes on food to say that it was if it was if it had GMOs in it. Um, when and that was a way for them to avoid the laws that are going to be coming into effect this year in Vermont, in particular, uh, which is the first state to mandate GMO labeling. And the corporations didn't want that to happen because now they have to make. You know, GMO labeled food and non-GMO labeled food for for everywhere but Vermont. Connecticut's uh, around the corner, and um, because people pushed and pushed and pushed, uh, that was not snuck into the budget. And um, so we have maybe one more year at least. But uh, yeah, gotta keep fighting. Keep breaking those laws when you have to. (laughs) With where we are in our schedule, regretfully, there's no more room for questions. But do any of you have any final thoughts? for this conversation today. Mm. Reality is up for grabs. Mm. (laughs) (laughs) And you can definitely create the reality you want to live in, for sure. I mean, I think that the four of us up here, um, it's really really nice to, 
to know where we all came from and to you know have have come I think as far together and separately as we have and you know it's true that we can be incredibly peaceful people that are doing some really really radical work and there's a lot of people doing that and it's really exciting um, you know fear is our greatest enemy it's not it's not other people it's being afraid to take action because that doesn't that's, that doesn't only contribute to killing the planet it contributes to killing yourself as well and I think that not being afraid to do what it is that you believe in and finding other people who aren't afraid to support you is really the thing that's going to change the world don't be afraid and that was Nate Kleinman of the Experimental Farm Network, Paul Glover, founder of Philadelphia Orchard Project, Robin Mello of Philadelphia Orchard Project, and Katrina Baxter of Public Interest Law Center. Find out more about each of them via the links in the show notes. As we touched on in this conversation, all of us have gifts, talents, and abilities that can change the world. Maybe right now they aren't getting used because, as Robin mentioned, we're afraid. Or as Paul said, we have to act with civil disobedience to get there. I can't say how much you can take on or how far you're willing to push the lines before those lines push back, but I am here to help you discover your passion, to jump even though it seems frightening, and to get your work done. If after listening to this interview there's any way I can help you on your journey to do what it is that inspires you, whether to take the first step forward or to arrive at your destination, get in touch. The phone number is 717-827-6266, and the email address is show at the permaculturepodcast.com. If digital means are not your preferred way to reach out to me, you can also drop something in the mail, as I do enjoy receiving letters and have a box full of every one that's been sent to me over the years since starting this show. That address is the Permaculture Podcast, P.O. Box 16, Dolphin, Pennsylvania, 17018. From here coming up is the Mid-Atlantic Permaculture Convergence outside of Charlestown, West Virginia, at the Riverside Project. Our keynote speaker for the day is Michael Judd, who talks about his experience as a permaculture practitioner, and Joel Glansberg will be visiting and delivering the opening remarks. Classes and workshops are scheduled on Living in the Gift, Animals in Permaculture, Broadacre Permaculture, Whole Systems Learning, as well as some plant walks and tree ID sessions. If you plan to attend, please consider carpooling. If you haven't picked up your tickets, get them today at midatlanticpermacultureconvergence.eventbrite.com. One of the next offerings from Sepia's Place is a permaculture design course in The Gift, which we've created as a low-cost permaculture design course. Sepi Garrett, Alexis Campbell, and myself are offering this class as a gift of our time and knowledge that we share with you without expectation of further return or compensation. However, there are some baseline operational expenses for the course. These include utilities for the space, books and educational materials for students, as well as honorariums for guest instructors to cover their time and travel costs when they come in to join us for the class. So we're asking students to help cover those baseline expenses in the following manner. If you'd like to attend all three units of the class and receive a permaculture design certificate, we're asking for $225. If you'd like to come for unit one and unit two, which does not include a certificate, that's $175. If you'd like to come for just one of the four-day sessions that we're offering, that's $100. The first unit is Permaculture Philosophy and Practice from Thursday, July 7th through Sunday, July 10th, 2016. 
The second is a permaculture immersion from August 11th through the 14th, 2016. And the final is a permaculture design practicum from September 15th through the 18th, 2016. If you're near Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, would like to join us, register today, and we'll see you soon. Until the next time, spend each day discovering your passions and creating the world you want to live in by taking care of Earth, yourself, and each other.